listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So hello everyone and welcome to another, what I think is going to be a fantastic episode of Derms and Conditions. Backed by popular demand, a guy who I've gotten to know for quite some time now since he's finished his residence. You probably know him from about 2004, 2005. So we've known each other for some time. And that's that's Matt Zyrus. And Matt Zyrus is a practicing clinical dermatologist. He's in the trenches in Columbus, Ohio, busy clinical trial center, but seeing a lot of patients for just to come in and, and get help with, quote, dermatitis. But, you know, that that's a pretty broad subject, Matt. And, and so, Obviously, you can have people that are coming in with, they think they have one thing, or even a clinician sends them for one thing, and they may not have that. They may have something else. So you always have to be on your toes for differential diagnosis. So so how did you, I know you trained in Pittsburgh, right? You got out in 2004. Uh, and back then, when you first heard of Jim Del Rosso, I think you're like, wow, this guy seems pretty impressive. And now all these years later, you realize He's not as impressive as you thought because you got to be a lot smarter than me. <laughs> no way. I realize you're even more impressive than I thought. Oh, God. Uh, even but, more impressive. No, but just uh, tip my hat to what you've done in your career and what you focused on. It's a complicated area. Um, so let's start with how did you get into contact dermatitis and examinist dermatitis. What, yes. we, what, did that happen in Pittsburgh or did it happen yeah, later? Yeah, it absolutely happened during residency. Uh, I still even kind of remember the day uh, when it started and, and I was seeing what you what at the time I called uh, dermatitis unspecified or non atopic adult dermatitis. And so these those were the kind of patients that I got interested in because we didn't have any idea what they had. So we're talking somebody with, you know, chronic dermatitis. So uh, it's been going on for at least six months, might be continuously going on, might be come and go, but waxing and waning to some extent. Uh, and no history of rashes as a child, no history, no significant personal history of atopy, uh, just started to get dermatitis. Might be been going on a few years, might have been going on, like I said, six months, uh, but that patient. And as a resident, I naively thought these people must all have contact dermatitis, so I'll become a patch tester, and I'll be the genius and figure it out and cure them. And, you know, what I learned over time was that the vast majority of those people with nonspecific kind of relatively widespread dermatitis don't have contact dermatitis, right? So I'd be patch testing them to, you know, 80, 100, 120, 140 allergens. A lot of times we would find something that seemed like it could be relevant. Uh, but even whenever we found things that seemed relevant, people often didn't get better whenever they avoided it. And then the question was, well, maybe there's some other allergen that we didn't patch test to, or maybe they're not really avoiding it, or you just didn't know. And, and that really was how I got very interested in the world of dermatitis, uh, trying to find kind of answers for those people. And that was really the first 15 years of my career, uh, really trying to, you know, see if who we could get better via patch testing. A and 
still with the majority of the patients that I was taking care of, not knowing what they actually had, you know, why they had dermatitis, uh, because basically they, you know, didn't have a childhood history, wasn't particularly flexural, no strong history of, of, of other atopic conditions. And then, you know, they'd been patch tested and the patch testing hadn't resolved their dermatitis either. Uh, and so it was lots of, you know, throwing methotrexate and cyclosporin and systemic steroids and mycophenolate and azathioprine and phototherapy and everything you could think of at these people. But you still didn't really know what they had, right? You're still you're working within that family. But you brought up something interesting. I think it's really a good place to start because now that we have therapies, so it's very interesting. Disease states make front page news when suddenly there's a treatment, right? So right. that there's a lot of no, and that there's a lot of good research and, and thought processes that come out of it. We're, t we're talking about something we didn't talk about enough, which is good, but we have a lot of people at the podium and they'll say, you know, you, you can have people coming in that have adult onset or late onset atopic dermatitis. And you can, but, you know, and I always think about how do we really know that if someone doesn't have that history like you're talking about? And then suddenly Jim Del Rosso comes in at 55 years old and he's telling you he's itchy, he's got these rashes. No, I have no family history, no allergic rhinitis. And, and oh, you have adult, adult onset or late onset atopic dermatitis. How do you really know that? Or may Jim Del Rosso have you know, a lymphoma or something yeah. else. So how do you work? How do you make the diagnosis? And when do you biopsy or not biopsy? These are important questions right now. Yeah. And so first uh, question for me there really is, what do you, so, so first let me answer by saying it has changed so dramatically. So for me, so Five years ago, prior to Dupilumab coming on the market, uh, I would only call something atopic dermatitis in an adult if they had a childhood history and a strong personal history of atopy. Uh, nowadays, I am actually a believer that, and this is consistent with the AAD 2014 guidelines, chronic spongiotic dermatitis is atopic dermatitis until proven otherwise. And so when I get, when I see somebody with chronic spongiotic dermatitis, I'm very comfortable saying to them, you know what, you have eczema. Uh, and I always say to patients, and, but, but eczema, and they go, oh, because they're familiar with the term eczema. And then I said, but I saying you have eczema is like saying you got a headache. It, it's, you have a specific type of eczema called atopic dermatitis. And that's kind of like saying you got a migraine headache. And just like people with migraines, there's some things that will make it worse, right? So if you get, you know, with a migraine, if you get too stressed or you don't get enough sleep or bright lights or whatever might trigger your migraine, well, if you use bad products or the weather changes, or you get under a lot of stress, it might trigger your atopic dermatitis. But the fact is you have atopic dermatitis because your skin doesn't work as well as it should. And but Dr. Zyrus, you know, I'm 55 years old. I I didn't have this before. Where did this come from? All right. So I, I, I'm going to give you my secret answer to that, Jim, because I do I, I do not tell patients a like, well, we don't know. Could have been this. Could have been that. And because first, let me admit that in reality, we don't know. All right. We, we do not know. There are two main possibilities. Number one, uh, 
combination of genetics, and, and I think genetics are a part of it no matter what. Uh, and we keep finding out that the genetics of atopic dermatitis are incredibly complicated. Uh, genetics combined with natural aging of your skin, right? Your skin's older than it than it used to be, and it's just you know in this situation I'll use the the term the idea of arthritis. You know, just like as people get older, more and more of them have bad knees or bad hips or a bad back, and it's just because wear and tear as as time goes on. Uh, there's wear and tear and well, there's, you've been getting older and there's wear and tear on your skin. And so now it, it doesn't work as well as it used to. And, and I often will, uh, and so now your skin is letting stuff from the environment through. Now, the other answer that I'll give people, especially younger people. So in their thirties and forties, maybe even into their fifties is microbiome. And there was just a great article that came out maybe two weeks ago where they looked at intestinal microbiome in people with adult onset atopic dermatitis versus people with childhood onset atopic dermatitis. And there were distinct uh, microbiome changes. They were, they were different in the two groups. We, we've known for a while that there's uh, some microbiome abnormalities in atopic dermatitis. We have some we have actually a reasonably good randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial showing that probiotics make a difference uh, in atopic dermatitis. And so now the, the other answer that I'll give people, and, and this one is really resonates with patients, uh, is, well, it, it's actually uh, food. So food has been the big problem. And, and they kind of light up like I'm about to tell them what they're allergic to and what to avoid. And say, well, food is probably the problem, but it's not that you're allergic to anything. It's that all of the processed foods, the preservatives, the food dyes, the food additives, the hormones, the antibiotics, all of those things in the food have, have changed the, the natural bacteria that live in your intestines. Those are now out of balance, and that is triggering your immune system to overreact to things in your environment. But do you get these people that, you know, there are certain people that will latch on to something and then they'll, they'll go down a rabbit hole or, or, or a path. Now, yeah. suddenly they're getting very worried about, oh, what food am I getting? And, you know, what's in this? and what? So you create somewhat of a hysteria in their mind about that? Or how do you manage that? Because I've got an answer for them that's coming right away. That's why uh, I ask, because I know yes. Matt Zyrus has an answer. Right. If I'm gonna if, if I'm gonna give them a problem, I'm only gonna give them a problem that I've got a solution for. Okay. Uh, and so number one, I'm gonna say, well, first the the you know the cleaner you eat, the better. But you know, no matter what you do, and unless you want to go live in the woods and only eat stuff that you find on the on the ground. Uh, you're, you're probably not going to be able to really improve this with just your diet. But what we are going to do is start you on a probiotic that is going to get that natural bacteria back into balance over time. Now, stepping out of the room with the patient for a second for, for our listeners, the probiotic that I recommend uh, is, uh, and I have no conflict of interest here, a brand called Now, N-O-W, get it on Amazon. Uh, so Now probiotic 10, 25 billion. And the reason I recommend that one in particular, the randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that was done in, I think, Brazil, uh, the four strains, uh, that was a four-strain probiotic, those four strains are four of the 10 strains in the one that I just recommended. So I'm, I'm getting the right strains into them. Uh, now, do I have, is there a study with this particular probiotic? No. 
but again, it's it's you get it on Amazon. It costs about ten bucks a month to be on it, so it's cheap. And, and so now I'm giving the, giving them the answers. Probably your your microbiome got out of balance. You're gonna I'm gonna have you start taking this probiotic, but it may take you know six months or a year of taking the probiotic to to really have it get things back into balance for you. Still gonna need other types of treatment. Exactly. So this is and, and I use the term. This is the best we can do to treat the cause of your eczema. Uh, while, but, but we can't just wait for that to start working because we don't know for sure it's going to work. That's, that's not the cause in everybody. And if it does work for you, it's going to take a long time for it to work. So in the meantime, we need to treat your eczema so that you're not, you know, miserable. You're not scratching. You're not, uh, at risk for getting infections because of your eczema. It's not keeping you up at night. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of detrimental effects to your health if we don't treat your eczema in the meantime. What I like, what I like about this is, I could picture, and even for many years, you tell people we don't know the cause. I think pr- probably individuals that went to different clinicians, different dermatologists, got tired of hearing that. Yeah. Even though that may be true, at least this is giving them some kind of answer based on, you know, some science. You know what you're that that makes them feel like oh I'm, I'm with somebody that that's trying to get to the cause of it but obviously still need treatment but do you need to have other criteria because we have in our head right we have the Hanifin Rajda criteria or modified versions to make that diagnosis a number of criteria or just a spongiotic dermatitis so so the AAD consensus criteria which are the ones that I like best because uh, they're actually even a little broader than Hannafin and Reka. So AAD criteria from 2014, uh, eczematous dermatitis, so sponge derm, uh, chronic, pruritic, uh, and then with a uh, typical age-related pattern. And then it says for typical age-related patterns, infants, uh, face and extensors, uh, flexural in any age group, and then the third one is spares the groin and axilla. And so what I can boil those down to is chronic pruritic spongiotic dermatitis that spares the groin and axilla now meets the criteria. Now then there's a, the other part of this though is, and you have uh, as much as you can have ruled out the things that are differential diagnosis. So they can't have, if they have contact dermatitis, no, then if, or if they have, well, how, do you know that, how do you know they don't though? And, and that's exactly the question. So the, and Jim, this is like the, the quadrillion dollar question. And, and I am an outlier in, in my answer to this question in the contact dermatitis world. Oh, that's um, a surprise. Matt virus <laughs> is an outlier. Okay. Oh, I'm so, shocked. <laughs> so I, I now think uh, that, so first thing, let me tell so I, I will tell you, I think that we way over suspect contact dermatitis, and I think that we way over diagnose contact dermatitis. So spongiotic dermatitis with a positive patch test does not equal contact dermatitis. It equals, maybe this is contact dermatitis, but the only time that you really that I'm certain someone has contact dermatitis is positive patch test, got them away from it, they cleared. It still may not be that it was contact dermatitis. It could have been that, hey, just changing their products and the whatever got their atopic dermatitis better. But so then the only time I'm certain someone has contact dermatitis is then they got re-exposed 
and they and, and they broke out in an appropriate time course for that. Now the so the all of the literature out there that says uh, this many people with atopic dermatitis have contact dermatitis uh, or you know are allergic to this allergen or whatever. I don't believe any of it uh, because we it it could be they have atopic dermatitis and a positive patch test, but the positive patch test has nothing to do with their dermatitis, right? It could be that the positive patch test is the entire cause of their dermatitis. It could be that the that the positive patch test is ten percent of the cause or ninety percent of the cause. We truly, there's no gold standard for being able to differentiate the two. You're pouring all these possibilities in the top of the funnel, but that's still leaving me kind of confused. So what do I do? Does it boil down to you having an approach to what you do with that patient? Because that would be important. Yes. So what I do with that person. So so first, we're going to talk about the person who comes in with a scattered dermatitis. So first, if they have facial dermatitis, uh, to be honest, what I'm probably going to do is immediately treat them, even if it's not in the right distribution and doesn't quite look right, I'm probably going to treat them as seborrheic dermatitis. Uh, my experience over the years was that I saw so many people with eyelid dermatitis, scattered facial dermatitis, that then when I would put them on uh, a TCI, tupacalcinurin inhibitor and an antifungal agent, they, that would work when nothing else had worked. Uh, and sometimes I would put them on a short course of itraconazole or fluconazole as well. So I, I do think that what I would call non-classic seborrheic dermatitis is very is much more common on the face than than we think as a cause of spongiotic dermatitis. Uh, but somebody with fa relatively face and neck limited dermatitis, very low threshold for me to patch test them. Uh, but probably what nowadays what I'm going to do, even though I'm still primarily a patch tester, I'm going to have them switch to products that I know are very low allergenicity. So I'm going to have them get, you know, Vanna cream shampoo and conditioner. Uh, there's another line that I really like that's a little higher end for, for women. Because, uh, you know, with long hair, you got to use good shampoo or your hair's not going to be nice. Uh, another line called VMV uh, Hypoallergenics. And I have no conflict with either of those two lines. So I'm going to have them switch to something like Vanna cream shampoo and conditioner. Uh, I might have them switch to using CeraVe uh, hydrating cleanser, uh, which I do have a conflict of interest. I do do some work with CeraVe, but other, you know, I also think that Dove Bar is a very, very low risk uh, for allergenicity. Neutrogena makes an ultra sensitive facial cleanser. Uh, so I'm going to have them switch to low allergenicity shampoo and conditioner, and I'm going to have them switch to a very low allergenicity cleanser. Uh, it, now makeup, very rare over the years that I ever found makeup as a cause of allergic contact dermatitis. Uh, if they're using decent makeup, it probably has a low likelihood of having allergens in it, but also with makeup, because it's not a rinse off product and it's applied to a very specific areas, you just, and it's a leave on, it should be pretty obvious, right? If you're allergic to your foundation and I had some women over the years allergic to their liquid foundation, their dermatitis, you know, ended right at their neck where it was a sharp cut off. Like it was, makeup is a common cause of irritant dermatitis. It's also a common cause of irritant dermatitis from makeup remover. But makeup is very rare for me as a cause of allergic contact dermatitis. So I usually don't make them change their makeup unless there's there's some aspect of it that really correlates with with where they're getting it. Um, but so I'm going to switch them to really low allergenicity facial products. Uh, so shampoo, conditioner, and cleanser in particular. And if they do get better on that, uh, get significantly better, then I'm going to give them the option of, hey, you know what? This probably is contact dermatitis. 
we can try and patch test you and figure out what it is, what ingredients it is that you're allergic to. And that's going to allow you to have a, a bigger, if we know what you need to avoid, then we know what you can use. Right now, we don't know what you need to avoid. So basically, if, if you're okay using these products and no other products forever, we probably don't need to patch test you. Uh, but if you want to have a, a bigger selection of products, then we probably need to patch test you. The other group of people uh, that I, again, I have a relatively similar approach to are hand dermatitis patients. So first, my experience is that palm limited uh, hand dermatitis is very unlikely to be allergic contact dermatitis with the one exception of dietary nickel. So, you know, Dietary nickel is, we could do a whole podcast on dietary nickel. Uh, it's something that, again, if I even bring this up to, to a, a group of contact dermatitis people, probably two-thirds are like, I don't really buy it. But the data is unbelievably strong. So there are randomized double-blind, uh, not randomized, but double-blind food challenge studies showing that if you give nickel allergic people a dose of nickel, you can make them break out in a rash. And it, in some people, it's a very low amount of nickel, more than enough than the way you could get in a traditional diet. But that could be a whole other podcast. So are they good. the same people that are going to get reaction to metal like earrings? or not? So again, we got an answer to that a couple of years ago. That was a fascinating question. Because I always wondered, half of the people that I would get a positive patch test to nickel, and I would say, oh, you get problems from earrings, huh? Would you be, no, I never had a problem from an earring in my life. Never. And I wear cheap. We had a great uh, study recently, about two years ago now, that showed that uh, people who are Nick, who get reactions from jewelry, have different skin surface chemistry. Uh, because right, you've got to leach the nickel out of the jewelry, and that all of us have different. You know, our sweat is different, our our sebum is different, our filaggrin levels are different, whatever. And so, it, to get allergic contact dermatitis clinically, if you're nickel allergic, you have to have your your body has to be leaching the nickel out. out. Right, right. So, the, so about half of these people don't really have a uh, a, a strong history of nickel allergy. Um, but so then the just the, the real short of it. Uh, if, if somebody goes online, if, if you get interested in this and you want to look at low nickel diets, uh, you Google Rebolytics, R -E, and I have no conflict here, Rebolytics, R-E-B-E-L-Y-T-I-C-S, nickel uh, diet. And Rebolytics is like the name of the website, but they have a fantastic uh, explanation of dietary nickel allergy. Uh, the page that's written for patients, and then they have regional low nickel diets. And the reason they're regional low nickel diets, and, and, and this is a real challenge, uh, the nickel is primarily in plants. Uh, it's particularly concentrated in legumes and oats, uh, but it can be at a high level in any plant if that plant is grown in high nickel soil. The other thing that you don't know about is water supply. So different municipal water supplies have different amounts of nickel in them. Might be none, might be relatively high. Would a water uh, so, would a, does a water softener or a water conditioning system take out nickel? Unknown. Unknown. Uh, so what I end up doing with these people, I actually do oral chelation therapy. So uh, there was a study back in, oh, it's had to be in the 80s or 90s, where they, they were looking at a village in South America or somewhere that had excess nickel levels in the wells or something. 
uh, and they were looking for ways to combat this. And so they gave people doses of oral nickel and then monitored their blood levels of nickel. And what they found was that if you give people uh, disodium EDTA along with the nickel, then you don't see a rot. You can they can eat the they can consume the nickel and it doesn't show up in their blood. And disodium EDTA is available as a supplement. Uh, oh, I have so people orally, think, orally, uh, orally, orally, because it, it is used in a lot of personal care products. But it is a, a EDTA is a known food additive. We know that it's very safe to take. I have people take a very very low dose of it because you only needed forty milligrams. Uh, of it taken with the nickel bolus. And so I actually have people dilute it into water and then carry that bottle of water around with them. And every time they eat, take a couple sips of the water. Uh, and, and I find that that has been more consistently effective than low nickel diet. Uh, but again, with these people, you never know. Maybe the nick you know, positive patch test to nickel and dishydrotic hand eczema. Uh, I, I say, well, it's could be the nickel. Let's try you on the low nickel. Let's try you on a nickel systemic nickel regimen. Maybe they get better. Maybe they don't. If they get better, then I'm okay. It was the nickel. If they don't get better, all right. Wasn't the nickel. I don't keep going down the the pathway of the nickel. Well, you uh, know, I, when I learned I learned about some of this from you and and a couple of individual individuals, and I did go that route of getting some people on the low nickel diet that had, you know, that frustrating yeah. dishydrotic eczema and you, you know, it's, a, it just keeps coming back and, and it made a difference in some of those people. But Matt, I'm going to stop right here because I've been writing things down and you gave me a tremendous amount of homework assignment and I'm going to come back to you because I want to go further still on how we're differentiating atopic dermatitis or not. Right. So I, I, I now generally think of dishydrotic hand eczema as atopic dermatitis of the palms now. I think of if you've got dorsal hand and palmar, then I think there's a high risk of, of contact dermatitis. And if it's just dorsal or interdigital, then I think that it is uh, most likely to be irritant contact dermatitis. But but that's in and if it's a if somebody that I really suspect contact dermatitis of the hands, I will do the same thing low allergenicity soap, low allergenicity moisturizer. I'll give them the list of accelerator-free rubber gloves uh, that, that we've got. So most of the major glove manufacturers now make accelerator-free rubber gloves. And that'll take care of if they're latex or, latex yes. or rubber allergic? Okay. Latex or rubber accelerator allergic. Uh, and then if they get better, great. It's probably allergic contact dermatitis. Uh, now we can patch test you to figure out what you're allergic to, or you can keep following the regimen that I gave you. Just don't change anything and you should stay better. Uh, and then the, so that, that's kind of my approach to, to hand dermatitis, but I now think of hand dermatitis as uh, other than contact dermatitis, a subtype of atopic dermatitis. And, and then the next group that we got to get into Jim or the, you know, the, so we talked about face, we talked about hands Then we got to talk about the scattered widespread dermatitis patient. And we will do that. But right now, we've run a little bit long today. We both have to get back to patients and our day jobs. But I will be coming back to you to get more information. This has been fascinating. Thanks a lot, Matt. You got it, Jim. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.